0: All right, good morning, guys. Good morning. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and we are going to be continuing our Invitation to More sermon series. Before we jump into the sermon, I want to reflect um, a little bit on, on the events of recent days. You guys know um, about the events in our city over the weekend, the verdict that came down on Friday, the protests, the tension, uh, the violence. Here's the thing. I, I have a friend who is a cop in the city. He's a good man. Um, he risks his life on a daily basis to protect others. He posted a picture Saturday, early Saturday morning after he got off his shift after the Friday night protests. And he pictured a, put up a picture of his, of his helmet and uh, it had these huge gouges in it. Um, Where somebody had thrown chunks of concrete and they had hit him in the head. Now he was uninjured, um, but he was singing the praises of his helmet. Someone on his Facebook feed made a a really rude comment about what should happen to those people who threw those rocks. And he responded uh, by saying, It helps to remind myself that they weren't throwing them at me, they were throwing them at cops which was an interesting perspective. I have another friend, a friendly and beautiful young African-American woman who was marching in the protests. She was wearing a t-shirt that boldly proclaimed, F the police. She's the same age as my daughter's. She grew up in the same city as my daughter's. But she grew up having a very, very different experience of St. Louis than my daughter's. She has story after story of harassment. um, As a kid in the park, being threatened, searched, bullied by police officers. They were shaking the tree. It's a way of of either trying to get somebody who has drugs to admit they have them or to uh, point to those who's selling them or have them. But that was her experience. She has stories of walking down the street and being sexually harassed by a cop in her community. And when she would confront these officers with the injustice of their behavior, They would look at her and say, who are you going to call? You guys, our culture is polarized. And and people on each side are going to tell you there's only one way to approach this. You are either with us or against us. but, But I believe the gospel calls us to reject these oversimplified dualities. You guys, I can love cops and still be for systemic review and reform of policing systems. I can love my protesting friends and reject and condemn the use of violence to be heard. The gospel calls us to be a people of peace. And peace flourishes not when we can suppress conflict or remove people's voice. Peace flourishes when we see people instead of seeing issues. When we push for justice and not just comfort. So, will you pray with me as I pray for our city? Lord, we, we pray for our city, and we pray for ourselves. Lord, the world is, is jacked up, where power is used to hurt instead of to help others thrive, where we are motivated by fear instead of love. And it is easier to sit pridefully behind the walls of our own experience and judge people different from us than it is to be humble, ask questions, and listen. Lord, we confess that we are tempted to protect our comfort at the expense of the needs of others. We confess that we are quick to pull back in fear instead of pushing forward in love. Lord, we need your grace and we are so, so thankful for it. And we would ask that today and in the coming days you would protect both the police and the protesters from those that would inflame violence, from those that would work violence either on property or people. Lord, you tell us to pray boldly. You tell us that we should ask that your kingdom will come and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, we're asking The broken systems need to be reformed and broken hearts need to be healed. And Lord, we would pray that you would begin with us. We need grace as much as anyone out there. And Lord, you've called us to be the people of grace in this divided and broken culture. So we ask, Lord, that you would work that grace in us and through us and that you would do what only you can do in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you guys, we're going to be going over to Romans chapter 12 this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are going to Romans 12. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 947, 947, Romans chapter 12. This is the second week of our Invitation to More sermon series. We we did these booklets out last week and, and we had them in the lobby again this week. If, if, if you made it in here and you didn't get one of these, we would love for you to raise your hand and we will give you one. We want to make sure that, that you have one, so don't be shy. Just go ahead and raise your hand and, and we'll get you one. Um, because these are designed to help you engage the sermon, but also help you review the sermon. Each week we're going to be unpacking progressively some concepts uh, that we believe are going to, in, in the end, really help expose the transformative power of grace. And so we would love for this to be a tool that you use to engage the series, and uh, hopefully it will help you grow. Now, this morning we're going to be going to the chapter or the page in there called Counterfeit Power. And uh, some of you are going to notice right off the bat, you're going to be like, Steve, that, that's not the next page. I know. I know. We gave you a book, all right, note takers. Um, don't expect me to go through it like I laid it out that I need more flexibility than that. So we're going to jump around a little bit. Don't worry, we're going to hit it all. We're going to hit it all, but we're going to do it sometimes in a little bit different order, all right? Um, All right, so let's take a look at Romans chapter 12. We're looking at verses one and two together. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we started last week um, by unpacking a little bit of of, of Romans 12.2. We were talking about how worldliness is the default mode of the human heart. And I'm just going to review a little bit so that we're on the same page. So in in, in, in verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's an assumption in that verse that you are already conformed to the world. Worldliness is the default mode of the human heart. It is the current in which we all swim. It is the lens by which we view and interpret everything around us. And it's ours not by choice, but by inheritance. Our first parents rebelled against God. They said to God, we don't want you to be the center. We'll be the center. We don't want to revolve around your glory. We're going to live for our glory. We're we're not going to live under your authority. We're going to live under our own. We will be like God. And in rejecting God, the source of life, they then had to figure out ways of doing life without the source of life. That's what we call worldliness. The systems we develop, the ways we go about life to to get from life what only God can give in ways He doesn't give it. We look to the things God created instead of the Creator. And we say to those things, you will be God for me. You will do for me what only God can do. You will be for me what only God can be. Worldliness. It's how we try to cover our shame, And our brokenness and our weakness, it's how we try to build up our pride and our our false self, our false identity, what we present to the world. It's our way of trying to build ourselves up apart from God. And that's why last week we we kind of unpacked this idea that, that religion can be just as much an expression of worldliness as the strip club. It can be our way of avoiding intimacy with God. Right? We can go through all the behavioral changes. We can put all the things in order. We can do all the right things. And in the process, uh, avoid having to actually be humble and present and dependent on God. Worldliness. So he says, don't go on being conformed. Right, You already are. You're born this way. Don't be conformed to the world. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, at the end of last week, we, we pointed out the verb tense there, right? Be transformed is passive, which means it's something done to you, not something you do. If I'm going to be transformed, I'm not transforming myself. I am receiving an action. Here's the thing. God's commanding us to do something we can't do. God's commanding us to do something we can't do, but He can. For us to be Uh, transformed we will have to learn how to be dependent he can renew our minds he can transform our hearts and he does it by working out the principles that we see in verse one right so in verse one i urge you therefore brothers by the mercies of god to present your bodies a living sacrifice to god this is your spiritual act of worship or your your logical reasonable uh, pattern of life right and in this verse, we find the, uh, the three G's that we discussed last week. So last week, we, we looked at this model. Maybe. All right. Lori, can you help me out? So last week, we're going to have somebody look at this real fast. We love technology. And we talked about how there are three principles in this verse, grace, gratitude, and growth. That grace is the engine that produces a response of gratitude, which then propels us into growth. And we see that in verse 1, right? When you look at Romans 12, 1, Paul begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And you're like, wait, that's mercy. That's not grace. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. Right? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Right, So we deserve condemnation. We deserve to be judged for our sin. We deserve to be censored for our choices. We deserve a lot of things. And in mercy, God doesn't give, them to those, give those things to us. He gives them to His Son who died in our place. Grace is God giving us what we can't earn. So instead of, of counting our Trespasses and our sins against us, he instead uh, sees us in Christ. He covers us with the very rightness and righteousness of Christ. That's grace, right? This incredible story of a God who loves us. Even though we often run from that love and honestly resent that love because that love means we need to be dependent and that love means we need to be humble and our pride hates dependency and our pride hates humility. We don't like to be dependent. I remember when my daughter was born, she was this precious bundle of beauty, right? The wonder of, of, of you know, a kid, right? And, and when you're a young parent, you know how it is, man. You're just yearning, like, man, I can't wait for the first words, right? I, you're like, oh, they're gonna walk today. No, you're like, you're yearning for those first, right? Let them talk, let them walk, and then you spend the rest of your, 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 your life, basically saying, sit down and be quiet, right? Um, we yearn for it to happen, and then when it happens, we're like, oh man, that was rough, right? So, so our daughter was 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 like getting ready to talk, and there's this debate between Lauren and I. Is she gonna say mama or dada first, right? And I'm like, dada right? Because it's competitive Steve, and I want her to say me first, right? And so um, we're like, mama and dada, and, 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 and we're yearning, and, 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 then, and then she says something, and we're like, wait, what'd she say? What'd she say? We lean in close, and she says, you aren't the boss of me. <laughs> like that entire sentence, it was amazing, right? She's like a prodigy, um, amazingly intelligent. Um, she said, not that much, but she said that later, and she said it a lot. Um, that's the cry of every human heart. That's the cry of every human heart. We resist the love of God because we resist the authority of God. We think it's going to be intrusive. We think it's going to be an invitation to less, not an invitation to more. Right? And so, so the grace of God, man, Here's what, when the grace of God breaks in, it is disruptive and amazing. Because we are caught in some moment of brokenness and shame, of need. We are in a place where we know we need something outside of ourselves. We are aware of our limitations. We, we know that, that we have great need. And then we look up into the face of our Father, and instead of seeing a face of rejection or censor or disappointment, we see a face of love. We see a face that is, that is just Drimming with grace. There's no judgment because Christ took it. There's no censor because it's an invitation to love. When grace comes in, man, it is disruptive and it is disorienting. It's like, whoa. I thought you were like an invading force that was going to come in and take me captive and, and like shrink my life, but all of a sudden my heart is so full from being loved. It is, it is God breaking in and we taste mercy, and we taste grace, and that has an incredibly powerful effect on our hearts. So this model of grace and gratitude and um, growth, I've started calling the the three G's. That's just a shorthanded way of referring to this cycle of growth, and and so grace breaks in, and, and when it does, It produces within us this response of amazement. It it produces within us a response of humility. When someone loves you unexpectedly, when God loves you unexpectedly, there is a disarming that takes place. There's a relaxing of the defenses. There's no fear in being loved. And in that moment, man, something in that humility starts rising up as joy. And humility and joy express themselves in gratitude. And so there's this birth of, of gratitude. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying, right? When he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He's saying, I motivate you. Like, like you want the motivation for change? You want the motivation for transformation? It's right here. It's grace. I want you to look back at the God of mercy and grace. I want you to consider the actions of a God of mercy and grace. I want you to fill your vision with a God of mercy and grace. I appeal to you. I motivate you by the gratitude that will emerge in your heart as you deeply experience grace. And as you experience grace, you will grow and you will change the way Paul puts it in Romans 12.1 is, is, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Now, I, I promised you last week that I was going to explain that phrase, which sounds kind of scary, right? Um, I, I, I was, that if I explained it well, you would, in the end, see it as an invitation to more, not an invitation to less. More life, not less life. More joy, not less joy, right? Climbing up on the altar to die doesn't sound like a party, um, but I guarantee that, that if I do my job well, if I open this up well, you're going to see it as a beautiful invitation. I'm not going to do that this morning. That's coming in a later message. I'm just letting you know. Um, we're going to be getting to that. What I want to say about it this morning is this. Growth is hard. It's necessary, but growth is hard. There are growing pains. This growth will often feel like sacrifice. Especially as God calls you into deeper, deeper levels of dependency on Him and humility before Him. Because anytime our pride is killed, it feels like we're dying. That's why, that's why you know the difference between humility and humiliation, right? Pride. Pride. You can't insult a humble man. You can, but he's not going to feel the sting. You know why? Because what's he got to defend? It's not that he doesn't think much of himself. It's that he doesn't think about himself much. He doesn't need to defend himself. He knows how much God is for him. He knows how much God loves him. He knows he is covered in the very righteousness of Christ. Insult me? Absolutely. You don't know the half of it. But, but I'm okay with that because I am covered in the very righteousness of Christ. I am loved by God the difference between humility and humiliation is pride and the pain that we feel as God leads us into greater levels of dependency is our pride dying and our souls being set free and we will grow into greater joy and greater freedom and greater power God will push you out of your comfort zone and into a growth zone and while it's uncomfortable in the short term, man, it is what explodes the boundaries of your joy long term. And what ends up happening is as you experience that, it increases your experience of grace. As you grow, as you go through these struggles, as, as God leads you into a greater and greater experience of dependency and, and freedom, you come to wonder at and experience and, 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 and just become amazed at grace. Your awareness of grace and how powerful God's love actually is 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 deepened. And as your experience of God's grace is deepened, it awakens within you new levels of humility and joy, which express themselves in greater and more profound expressions of gratitude. And as you move into greater and more profound expressions of gratitude, it propels you into more more deeper and more powerful experiences of growth. Are you following me? This is a dynamic process that never ends. The Christian life isn't just about believing in Jesus and then getting down to the hard work of, of being a Christian. Following Christ means going back to the well of grace continually so that we can be reignited in our experience of love and grace and having been reignited in that to be motivated to deeper and more profound experiences of generosity and obedience. And we grow, not by becoming better and better. We grow by becoming more and more dependent and humble and joyful in our experience of grace. Because at its core, this experience is simply an increasing experience of love. Now remember, God's love runs countercurrent to the flow of our heart. We are born worldly, right? The natural inclination of our hearts is to to be me-focused, Right? To, to be focused on my glory, my strength, my pride, my accomplishment, my ability to fulfill my needs. It's, it's about me, and that's why I'm so afraid of God as an invading force, because He's going to threaten the kingdom I am building around me. And God comes in, and, and He works against that current, which means grace will be turbulent in your life. Your growth will not come without pain. There will be a turbulence, because when God breaks in in His love, He's breaking in against the natural flow of our heart. If you are struggling in your Christian life, welcome to the club. That's the club. It's not believe in Jesus and your life is all better and everything's perfect. It's believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus. And he is going to transform you. Here's the beauty, you guys. The best we can do is rearrange the furniture of our hearts. Right? We put the best pieces out front so people can see them. We try to hide the worst pieces. We stick them in closets and we hide them in darkness. And we try to forget they're even there ourselves. God promises to actually transform our hearts, not just rearrange the furniture of our behavior. It is an invitation to more. Here's the problem, though, you guys. That, that current of our heart, just because you become a believer, doesn't just go away that worldly, me-centered, me-focused current of your heart does not go away. It keeps going, right? We hate to be dependent. We hate it when our pride is pricked, when, when humility comes in and it feels like humiliation, right? It feels like death. And it hurts and we don't like it. And even though God is working to take us through the gateway of increased joy and freedom and power and life, we resist it. Now, we often hijack God's work and do it in our way because sometimes the, the tension of God's grace working against the natural inclination of our heart becomes too great. And we, in the end, settle for religion or religious expressions instead of grace. And, and there are some specific ways that we do that, that I would like to, to kind of highlight, because I think these are potentially natural inclinations of, of your heart, right? There are ways that, that we, we focus on what we can do instead of what God has done, right? The, the way of the worldliness is all about what I can do, right? That's, I can take pride in that. I can hide my shame behind that. I don't have to be dependent on that. The work of God is always about what he has done, Me resting in what he's done. Me responding to what he has done. Me being changed by what he has done, right? So there are ways that that we hijack the work of God. One way we do that is by truncating the experience of transformation and focusing just on pieces of it, right? Like, Like we focus on grace and growth. Grace and growth. We don't focus on responding to grace. We don't focus on humility and, and the growth of humility. We don't focus on the increase of, gener- uh, of gratitude in our hearts. We, we focus on grace and growth. We focus in, on know and do. Know and do. See, when we focus on know and do, we, we shift the process of the Christian life into knowing more and doing more. Knowing more and doing more. It's all about fixing ourselves by getting more knowledge or getting more discipline. Learning more things or becoming more self-controlled. Knowing more and doing more. When we run into a problem, we think, well, the solution must be, I need to read another book. I need to grasp some deep theological concept. I need to learn more or I need to do more. I need to read more of my Bible. I need to spend more time in prayer. I need to get up at 4 a.m. Ouch. I need to do more. I need to to work harder, do better. And then what ends up happening is is when we get into that rut, we tend to get around other people that are in the same rut. You know why? Because we like us reflected to us, and so we start hanging out with people that are know-and-do people that are approaching the Christian life in the same way. And pretty soon we start meeting in, in a church, and we create a church culture that is know and do. And in that know and do culture, discipleship, which is really just our way of explaining how we grow in the Christian life, discipleship becomes either doctrine-centered or moral-centered. So you have doctrine-centered churches. Their whole thing is, if I can just put the right information in your head... You'll be the right person. If I can just get you to think the right things, then you'll be the right person. And so their hallmark becomes usually some specialized piece of doctrine, right? You just need to understand more of the sovereignty of God. You just need to understand how Israel fits into God's redemptive plan. You just need to understand, like whatever it is, they, they become, this becomes their distinctive hallmark thing. You need more knowledge. Churches that are do churches that are focused on on moralistic change, then, then their focus is on, on discipline and, and, and growing and, and, and becoming, you know, starting to do the right things and stop doing the wrong things. So discipleship for them is, is helping you come up with a self-improvement plan. Here's your little checklist for the day. Did you have your quiet time? Did you spend time in prayer? I don't understand why you're still struggling. You must not be doing it hard enough. Go back and, and read the scriptures harder, Go back and pray harder. Go, go back and do these disciplines fast, harder, right? Because their only solution is know and do. That's the only thing they know. The problem is, a young believer, man, they may grow in a church like this. You may have been in a church like this, right? Where it's like, like it, I'm not saying when the gospels preach, man, growth happens, right? So, so you can become a believer and you can grow in an environment like this, but eventually you're going to be frustrated because you're going to run into something that can't be solved by knowing and doing there's going to be a stronghold in your, in your life, a sin that you can't overcome, a pattern of behavior that you don't know how to, how to, how to, how to overcome, or, or, or a deep hurt that you don't know how to forgive. And when people are like, well, you just need to know more, or people are like, you just need to do more, you're going to be filled with shame. Because the more you know, it doesn't fix your heart. The more you do, it doesn't transform your desires. So what ends up happening is is you end up pretending and performing. You pretend. Like, I'll put my best furniture forward and I'll hide the bad stuff back here. I'll pretend. I'll I'll be who they want me to be. Because obviously when I look around, nobody's struggling like I struggle. Right? In this environment, everybody looks good. Nobody comes with their junk on display. Because that just makes everybody uncomfortable. Right? Right? because you obviously need no more, do more, and if your junk's still on display, you just need no more and do more, and we don't have anything else for you, so you just... And so everybody hides it. It becomes this environment in which people are are just putting on this display of who they're supposed to be while they're hiding who they really are. And what ends up happening is that's toxic. And young believers who are struggling with sin and, and desperately need the transformative power of grace start believing there is no power for them. They start believing there are promises of God, but they must not be for me. An environment like that is marked by a lack of true, spontaneous, powerful joy. It is a treadmill of self-effort. No more, do more. No more, do more. No more, do more. And you're on that treadmill, running, 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 and you never get where you want to be you never actually change you never actually become who God has promised who you can be know and do another kind of temptation is is grace and and gratitude know and feel a little bit different know and feel people um, they're not really focused on on the doing as much as the feeling. They know and feel people absolutely love emotional transcendent moments. They love those moments where they are just lifted up and out of themselves, and there is power in that experience, isn't there? When, when you are in a deeply emotional and vulnerable and even joyful place, and, and, and maybe it happens through worship music, and, and, and maybe it happens through, through um, community or prayer, or maybe it happens in, in some sort of other, where, where you are just lifted, man. You just love this feeling. See, churches that are, that are known and, know and feel, they, they focus on, on these these powerful emotional experiences. The problem, though, is that when you're having that emotional experience, it feels like transformation. Like when you're, when you're on that emotional high, you look at life and you're like, I can conquer anything. I can live the victorious life. I, I can overcome. And then you go home. And the emotions pass. And you're still you. And the furniture in the living room of your heart hasn't changed. And so you start chasing emotional high after emotional high. You start chasing the next anointed moment. You're looking for the next moment when God will show up, which thankfully God doesn't have to show up because he's already here. You know, what that usually means is, man, I had this deep, cathartic, emotional moment, and I just felt wonderful. So you start chasing that, and it becomes addictive, like this emotional high to emotional high with these deep lo- valleys in between with a lack of actual transformation. And, and in this environment, discipleship, when you approach a leader in that environment, you're like, man, I've got this stronghold I don't know how to let go of. I've got this difficulty I don't know how to overcome. I've got this deep woundedness I don't know how to release. They'll often tell you, and this is sometimes the actual coaching, is fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. Just fake the emotional high until you feel the emotional high. Fake the, the response until you till you feel it, right? You need this, this spiritual gift. God's not apparently giving to you, so fake it till you make it. Just pretend like you have the spiritual gift, and then maybe God will give it to you. Maybe you'll fool him into thinking, hey, I already gave him the gift. And then it'll show up. You guys... Emotional highs don't change your heart. They can fill your tank. But the problem is you don't need your tank filled. You need a new car. Right? You don't need a top off to get you to the next week. You need new transportation. You need transformation. Know and feel. You can guess where I'm going next. Um, There's another way that we often hijack the work of God instead of resting in what he's done, we we harness what we can do, and that is the the feel and do church. The feel and do. The goal of this is to feel the right things and do the right things, but without the power and the presence of grace. These churches are really, really big on self-help, feel-good, Sermon series on, on how to improve your marriage, how to have a better budget, uh, how to be more emotionally well-balanced, how to deal with stress. All good things, right? But it's god light, right? You could take Jesus out of those sermons and they would still be a good life coach because they're really not talking about Jesus. They're talking about basic principles for, for how to be a successful person, right? Or they're activist churches, do churches, where, where it's all about focusing on a specific region or a problem and, 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 and then trying to incarnate the love of God into that environment. So, so they love people in poverty or they address issues of water shortages in certain parts of the world or whatever it is, right? They, they pick an issue and, and that becomes their defining thing. They focus on feeling good or doing good. They become self-help churches or help other churches. The problem is when you're Jesus-like, Whatever changes you experience are going to be temporary. Whatever's happening, because there is, I mean, you guys know, you've been generous, you've been kind to somebody, right? There's that, that whole movement of, of um, random kindness. Commit a, an act of random kindness today. And I'm all for it, right? Send them my way. I love it, right? Random kindness is, is awesome, right? And there's something that feels good about c- being kind, Right? There's a, a, genera- a, a, a gratitude movement right now. right In our culture, they're like, all you need to do is learn how to be genuinely grateful. And there's power in that. You can experience a cathartic release of much of your tension. You can actually experience a, a lot of the release of the angst that you're feeling. But it will not transform you. Because there's only one force in the universe powerful enough to transform your heart, and that's the love of God. The unrestricted, unreserved, infinite outpouring of the love of God through the grace of Christ. We need to be infinitely loved, not just a cathartic moment of goodness. No and do churches fall short. Because they often, while they still talk about Jesus and maybe even have a verse for their sermons. end up robbing the church of its Savior because they have walked away from the beauty and the power of grace because it seems too exclusive. And it's offensive to say that he is God's one solution to mankind's problem. And so they end up becoming self-help huddles, or social activist organizations, instead of humble communities of redeemed sinners rejoicing in grace. All right, so don't hear what I'm not saying. All right, I get surprised all the time when people hear what I'm what I'm not saying. I'll hear people be, like, "Steve, man, why are you against repentance and moral behavior?" <laughs> Last time I checked, I'm not. <laughs> right i'm all for repentance i am all for moral behavior jesus is moral i want to be like jesus man bring it on i am all for repentance and morality but 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 you guys don't man steve's against us trying to be happy steve's against us trying to be successful steve's against us having deeply powerful emotional worship steve's against us being socially active and improving uh the problems in our world none of it's true that is not what i'm saying It's all news to me if I am. You guys, I am for these things. So much so that I think to honor them, we need to honor the gospel that empowers them. We can't take these good things, like moral behavior and social activism and and deep worship experiences, and make them ultimate things the things that we chase apart from the grace of God. When we do that, we undercut both the gift of God in them and the power of God from them. So listen, I am for them, nor am I trying to condemn other churches. I am trying to highlight the natural inclinations of our heart, the way we undercut the dynamic power of grace in our lives, the way we take the declaration that it is done and turn it into I must do. Because in our need to build our kingdom, establish our glory, keep control of our lives, we hijack the work of God in the power of our own flesh. These are the inclinations of our heart. And if we are going to be able to fully live out the transformative power of the gospel as a community, we're going to need to commit ourselves to a deep and renewing experience of grace. We need to keep pointing ourselves back not to what we do, but what he has done. We need to keep deriving our energy not from what we can accomplish, but from what he's already accomplished. We need to have visions for our lives that are so much greater than our small dreams and our small passions. Here's the thing, you guys. I want to highlight the danger of getting it wrong. Because there is a real danger in us getting it wrong. Each of these is a subtle emphasis on what I can do instead of what God has done. And when I do that, I rob the gospel of the power of grace. We will both miss it and misrepresent it. So don't raise your hand. Anybody in here know somebody with polio? Don't raise your hand because you don't. I'm just letting you know in advance. You know why? It's actually an amazing story. For 5,000 years... Polio is one of the deadliest diseases to ravage um, humanity. It's first mentioned uh, in the ancient Egyptian tablets. It has been around for, for um, millennia. It, 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 here's the thing: just the 1950s and 60s. Just in the 1950s and 60s, every summer waves of polio would go across our country, it would go across the world. At its peak, it killed or paralyzed over half a million people a year globally parents dreaded the summer because it struck kids especially and and it didn't it was no respecter of socioeconomic boundaries how much wealth you had how much education you had where you lived where you didn't live i mean it spread all over the place and then in 1955 professor jonas salk discovered a vaccine that worked against polio it was a way of introducing a small amount of the disease into a person, which would trigger an autoimmune reaction against it. And your body would then fight off that, that, that small amount and in the process build up defenses that would actually defend you against the actual virus. So that when polio actually arrived, your defenses were already in place and, and it couldn't, couldn't hurt you, right? In 1988, just 30 years after the discovery, It became a global focus in in one of the most unique and and, and powerful expressions of what humanity can do when they focus on working together. There was a global effort to eradicate polio. It was was multiple organizations, multiple continents. And then in 2016, there were six cases reported globally. Six cases. All right, so I'm not trying to start a a vaccine debate. I'm going to leave that for Facebook because I really believe that is the best place to arbitrate these kinds of debates. (laughs) Not going to go there. What I want to do is make the point that inoculation is incredibly powerful. It's powerful when it does good. But here's the challenge, you guys. It's powerful when it does bad. These false expressions of gospel transformation have the negative power to inoculate people against the power of grace. They get a small dose. And in that dose, they build up a resistance. Because it's not what they thought it would be. It's not what it was purported to be. People have progressively increasing experiences of disappointment. People start to despair of genuine transformation. They hear the great promises of the gospel and start assuming they are not true. That God is a God who overpromises and under-delivers. Because I'm not living it out. I'm not experiencing it. And so we come to have low expectations because we've been inoculated against the radical, incredible, invitation of the gospel others just walk away others see this hypocrisy in in the church and they see people singing about things they know they're not actually experiencing they know the things they have hidden in their back rooms they experience the quiet bitterness they know the disappointment and they look at it and they say i don't want to be like that and so their experience of a truncated gospel inoculates them against the genuine invitation of grace. And every time you try to talk to them about the beauty of the gospel or the person of Christ, they think they already know what you're saying. They think they already know what you're describing. They think they already know what you've tasted. They are inoculated against the gospel. Been there, done that. Tried that, doesn't work. Both responses are tragic because there is so much more. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so you could live a life of quiet desperation. The Spirit of God did not raise Christ from the dead so that you could give lip service to grace without actually being transformed by the power of grace. We honor God by expecting more. We honor the God who raised Christ from the dead. We honor God who gives such incredible invitations and promises. When we come to the Christian life and we say, I will settle for nothing less than genuine transformative power that the boundaries of my joy might be expanded, that the the power of my freedom might be increased, that my experience of the love of God, the profound grace of God, the freeing power of God, will not be limited by my short-sighted expectations. Some of you need to unlearn some of the lies you've learned about God. Some of you have had patterns of behavior, experiences that have led you to believe false things about God. That he is not as radically generous and loving as he says he is. That he is not as gracious as he says he is. That that he is not as powerful as he says he is. That He is not as committed to your good as he says he is. You need to unlearn those lies. Some of you need to unlearn the misrepresentations of the church that have blocked you from actually believing the gospel. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're a bunch of self centered, focused people. They're just about their morality and condemning people. You need to unlearn so that you can hear the genuine invitation of grace. Some of you desperately this morning need to have your hope reignited because you've given up on hoping for more. You have settled. And you're afraid. Listen to me. There is in front of you an invitation tomorrow, And it is extended to you from a God who delivers on his promises. It will be hard. There will be challenges. There are things you have to learn about yourself you don't want to know, and there are things you don't know about God that you desperately need. But by his grace he will take you there this morning will you dare to hope to reignite your vision for what it can be that you might actually be able to drink from the living fountain and experience the genuine fullness of life in the next few weeks we're going to be digging into the three G's next week we get to do grace that's my favorite We're going to talk about why it is so incredible and how it is so powerful. But for now, I'm going to wrap us up and lead us into a time of reflection. We're going to pray, create some space for for God to do his work, and, uh, and then we're going to share communion together, but that will be introduced in a moment. Let me pray for us, and we'll go into our time of response. Father, I thank you that you are a God of faithfulness and loving kindness. That you are a God who is bound to us not by our performance but by your word. That even though we fall short daily, you never measure us by our performance. You never judge us for our failure. You never reject us for our sin. You love us. And you love us so much you sent Christ to die for us in our place as our substitute that when he rose again, man, we might have the promise of new life. Man, that's love. And I pray, Lord, that you would reawaken our hearts to the profound implications of what it means to be loved by an infinitely powerful, infinitely holy, infinitely committed God. Lead us to repent of our small expectations of our quiet commitment to lives of of empty religious behavior, of just kind of hoping to get by. Man, Lord, would you reignite our vision for what it means to be loved by an infinitely loving God and to be transformed by that love that our lives are completely reoriented and set free. Ignite our imagination that we might have an ignited hope of what life can be. You guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.